1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. I'm Harriet Minter, and I'm here with the amazing... Natalie Campbell. And the incredible... Emma Sexton. And this week, we have been talking to Nicole Bremer property developer who's going to teach you how to make millions from houses. Plus, we are analysing our sheer love of sex in the city and Love Island and talking everyday racism. Now, let's go into our news for this week. What has caught our eye, Nat? Yours is first.
3: So first up, uh, this was a story that initially broke on social media. So Lewis Smith, the Olympic gymnast, was on a Virgin East, uh, Virgin train, uh, East Coast train, and he noticed some strange behaviour. So he was sitting on the train and the waiter, not the the ticket check guard, the waiter uh, was serving tea and he asked a black man sitting next to him for his ticket basically said can you sit in first do you have a ticket for first class he continued to pour tea and serve uh didn't ask any white patrons uh on the train whether or not they they had a ticket for first class he then asked lewis uh if he had a ticket and his social media feed just points out everything that was happening and sort of said at this point do you think it's a coincidence that he has asked the only black person and only mixed race person mm-hmm. on this train if they had in first class, if they have first class tickets. And I was reading through this and I sort of did an eye roll. And that's when I realized I eye rolled because it's a case of everyday racism. Now, everyday racism is a play on the similar hashtag everyday sexism, but it's not as popular. And I think we do need to start calling these sorts of things out because it happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was at Soho House, White City. I've been a member for for ages. We go there a lot uh i was with uh three three other friends so four of us four, four black women uh we had visibly paid the waitress knew we were paying because her colleague came up behind her with the card machine even though we paid and she must have realized this as we were leaving she ran after us very visibly calling out uh have you paid your bill which for my friend who was at, at the back and, and still sort of in the crowd it was quite embarrassing Uh, And she was like, of course we have and explained, you know, your colleague was right behind us with the card machine. And it's situations like that where, you know, the difference between someone making a genuine mistake and actually
4: they have pointed you out based on what you look like. Yeah, cuz you just mentioned you mentioned that in our production meeting and like there's been plenty of times that I've accidentally walked out of Soho House without paying and uh they just call me up the next day and say can you settle your bill please? Cuz you remember it's on the system. Re- exactly. So I'm actually horrified and that like, yeah like so
2: I think this is really interesting because lots of people are going to hear that and go well you know who was just asking Lewis for his ticket well like, she was just checking you pay your uh, bill. Yeah. Yeah? How how do you how do you know, Nat? How do you tell us? Tell those people that don't know. How do you know?
3: <sighs> Until it happens to yeah. you. you, you just won't and you won't understand. But there is a point where you know that someone has made a judgment based on what you look like that you have not done something or you do not deserve to be here, i.e., mm-hmm. there are only two black people or one black man and one mixed race man in this carriage. It's first class. Should they be here is the thing that's going on in his head. And therefore he asked to see tickets. He has no reason to check tickets. He was the waiter serving tea uh virgin did apologize and said they've launched a complaint in complaint and an investigation and the man sitting next to lewis also spoke to the train manager so i'm glad that it was flagged but actually i think we need to revive the everyday racism hashtag so actually so we don't have to explain what's happening in the same way you don't have to explain when you think something is sexist you don't have to say well i think it's sexist because of this you just take it as a given now because that is a, a woman's experience if i'm telling you that was racist versus not i know the difference because it's my everyday experience um and and so i think we need to start a campaign around everyday racism yeah because
4: you're eye-rolling because you you know you're used to it it's like it's just happened again and it's so familiar to you but i think You know, I think we do need to start calling this out because it's and also we should be much better at this in terms of, you know, uh, unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of organisations that are putting their employees through workshops and things. So I think we do need to start a revolution with this hashtag and start calling it out because what's familiar to you um, shouldn't be familiar, shouldn't just be accepted.
2: So we're going to put it on our social medias now, put that story on our social media uh, at Badass Women's Hour HR with the hashtag Everyday Racism. We'd love it if you would retweet it. If you see this stuff, if you see instance like this, let's throw it on Twitter and let's get this going and see if we can create a movement and make sure everyone realises what is happening. Mm-hmm. So, second story tonight. Uh, this is my pick: twenty-year anniversary of one of my favourite shows ever, *Sex and the City*.
4: Twenty years. Twenty
2: oh my years. Goodness. How I feel old, so old does that make you feel? Oh. Yeah.
3: 1998.
2: 1998. So it's been in the news a lot because obviously it's their 20 year anniversary and there's a lovely piece in Stylist about what happened when I rewatched every episode of Sex and the City um, and all the stuff that the author hadn't kind of realised was in there but definitely is. So for example the fact that the cast is basically entirely white. I think there is one... I've, I've just realized when we were talking about pre-production meeting, I know literally every episode of Sex and the City. Do you? There is one <laughs> classic Sex and the City episode where Samantha dates a black guy and tries to get involved in what is massively stereotypical black culture. Uh, yep, that's Yeah. Oh, that one. I miss <laughs> that one. <Yep. laughs>
5: uh,
2: other things, female friendship, what it shows us about female friendship. So this for me was one of the defining things about Sex and the City was that it, I thought, depicted female friendship in a way that, no other show did yeah. at the time. Yeah. And I know so much about it. There's a lovely scene where uh, I think it's Charlotte says, maybe we shouldn't be waiting around for men to be our soulmates. Maybe we should be each other's soulmates. And, yeah. just this nice and thing she we said that with. as a
4: joke. And I've had that conversation more than once with lots of women about yeah. that is basically the pension plan. <laughs> like, <laughs> Let's all live together in a house. Yeah, we, yeah that conversation yeah. has actually <laughs> We've happened. We've had that conversation. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Um, but the article ends by asking, would Carrie and Co. exist in 2018? Would the show have happened today? Emma, what do you think?
4: I think it would. I think it would actually be a better version today because there's some really interesting TV that's happening now, TV series, which are more diverse, that are more progressive, which are more feminist. So I would I would love to see Sex and the City rewritten. In fact, isn't there a show on Netflix, which is about the girls who work at the magazine? Yes. That's meant to Call be me like the then Sex and the City for the next generation. Yeah. That's a bit progressive. that did you love it?
3: I loved Sex and the City growing up. I was probably slightly too young uh, to fully appreciate it when it first started. Oh, maybe just a couple of years too, too young, young. maybe. Oh, yes. just, just saying. <laughs> yes. um, but I did. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was empowering. I loved the dynamic of their friendships. I loved how they spoke about sex and the, the fact that they felt powerful. I I really enjoyed the fact that we knew what they did in terms of jobs and work Th- that annoyed me towards the end of the series the the work took a back seat. like we didn't see samantha in her in her office bossing yeah. it as a pr we didn't see charlotte at the gallery we didn't see miranda at the law office and we definitely didn't see carrie doing any kind of journalism um she never did any no. journalism she just sat her typewriter yeah, wistfully basically <laughs> um But I do think if it was on TV now with exactly the same storyline, the same narrative, I probably would not like Carrie because she was not a very good friend. Um, I I would notice now that there are no black people in it until the guy that Miranda dates pretty much towards the very, very end and and, and close of, of the series. And I would notice a lot of the, I guess, stereotypes. So, samantha uh has a very transphobic uh turn in in one of the the episodes and it's sort of laughed off um i definitely would notice the the indulgence and the almost materialism of it all very materialistic didn't didn't notice that um the first time around but it it kicked off quite a, a generation and a change of um movies and other programs that were as open about uh, sex and girlfriends and relationships. So
2: and so interestingly, same week, um, a Bollywood film that's just been released and is being billed as India's answer to Sex and City is causing massive controversy because um, it features a scene of female masturbation, and this has just you know shocked everyone in a, a film culture where you can't really even show kissing. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we are, and I think this is so interesting. Twenty years on from when we were all. the UK shocked at Sex and City talking about vibrators and masturbation and all the other things it talked about and now India is having that moment and I feel now when we talk about these things on TV it's quite commonplace we're not as shocked by it we think it's normal Mm. and it has actually moved us on and that's the brilliant thing that really good
3: culture TV film can do well the director of, of the film um uh Bashkar I'm looking for her first uh, Swara Swara Bashkar said she that you know she was she was waiting for the backlash to happen ultimately because she realized that what she was doing was pushing the envelope in a culture mm. where it hadn't been pushed before but it's doing well at the box office and we all know that people like movies that make the money or, or studios and production houses like movies that make the money um, I think that, you know, she said that uh, we have a culture of silence around female desire and sexuality, which is pretty pervasive. So she's calling out the fact that women have sexual desires and she's just putting it on screen. Um, And
4: I say hats off to her. Keep pushing the envelope. It's pretty badass to do it in that culture as well. I think that, you know, has such strong religious beliefs. Um, So, yeah. Good honor. And speaking, obviously, of love on screen, we could
2: not talk about Love Island Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, Lovely story this week um, in The Guardian about why Love Island's brutal dating game show shows us that men are vulnerable too. Um, Because this week has been really, with one notable exception, all about the men being, as the Love Islanders would put it, pied. So they've all pied. been pied. I was so going to say rejected. But yes, pied? pied is the yeah. word. Yeah. Were they the all term? pied? No, they weren't
4: all pied. Not a couple all, of
2: them. Were. Uh, one of them wasn't. Adam wasn't pied, and Jack was pied, and then he was unpied. So yeah. um, Jack it is the one, one out with Danny the Dyer's thing. daughter, isn't he? Yes, hopefully yes, okay. also called Danny Dyer, just so nobody forgets oh, her.
4: Yeah, I mean that was it. A... <laughs> um,
2: but what it actually showed, which I thought was really lovely, so two big things about masculine vulnerability came up in the show this week the first being Alex's kind of multiple rejection from every woman mm. on the show and just feeling like he completely lost his place in the world because he didn't understand who he was if he couldn't attract a girlfriend.
4: Is Alex is the A&E guy. Alex is the a and Oh Doctor yes I really felt for favorite. him. Yeah. Really felt for him like so much it. he was at the point where he was like I'm gonna quit. Oh, you haven't watched it yet, have you, Nat?
3: No.
2: So
4: I'm waiting for it to, to appear on the <laughs> screen behind the screen. me for catch up.
2: And then the other one is Nile. So Nile got dumped by Kendall for Adam. Adam is a kind of six foot five
3: I mean, Versace he's model. He is fair. Okay, so yeah, I would I'm say bye to... bye too. Just saying from the visual you would say? Uh, I'd say bye-bye. Uh, look, this show oh, yeah. is about aesthetics, first of all. And I think one of the reasons it's... Uh, it's not enjoy about it. love. <laughs> uh, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, a certain type of love. Um, and so, you know, playing the game, if I was there to hook up with someone...
4: I'm going to go for the guy I think is the No, host. but this is what I think is fascinating because I feel all the girls are in there because they are looking for a relationship and the boys are in there because they are looking to play the game, and have a bit of fun, have a hookup. Really? No. Yes, yes, yes. Watch it. When you watch it, have a look. All the girls are like, I want to find love. I want to go over my ex and have such traumatic
2: love. You know women lie,
3: right?
4: Well,
2: mm. we'll see.
4: Um, so, micro-cheating. Emma, what is it? Wow, apparently micro cheating is changed. Once upon a time, cheating was all about lipstick on the collar, the smell of perfume on a lapel. But now, with the dawn of social media, there are some other clear cues that people are micro cheating. Um, Do you want to know what they are? Yeah. Uh, It'd be interesting, actually. I think there's about five. Messaging an ex. That is micro cheating, apparently. Mm. Mm, Okay. What would you think? Would you think your partner, if your partner messaged an ex, would they be micro cheating well not if they were friends with the ex surely yeah what if they weren't friends
3: (laughs) okay let's look at the scenario you're at a gig on a date with your partner the support actor turns out to be a favorite of your ex you take a picture and text it to him or her 24 hours later they've replied and put a kiss at the end of their message you if you continue the conversation is that cheating so you, you know you're reflecting reminiscing about something your ex likes. You've sent them a message. They respond with a kiss.
2: But I think it just depends how friendly they are. Like if they're friends, if you're in a big old friendship group together, they're mm-hmm. friends, they see each other relatively regularly. It's all kind of dead and buried and gone.
4: Yeah. Yeah, fine. If, if they, they ha-
2: haven't spoken for two years, mm. bit weird.
4: Yeah, it's true. There's a There's a lot of, context that needs to be yeah. around messaging an X, I think. We mm. are going to chat
2: to somebody who understands the nuances of micro-cheating, particularly this one and some others, uh, Dr. Martin Graff, Professor of Psychology at the University of South Wales. Well Hi, Martin.
5: Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> Sorry.
2: I <don't laughs> found your title very difficult there.
5: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh,
2: so, Emma just gave us an example of micro-cheating, which is mm-hmm. messaging an X.
5: Are yeah, there yeah. other
2: examples?
5: Uh, the, the, well, there are probably many examples, but I, I, I would stress it's not the actual examples. Um, you know, I've come across articles which say 33 ways that you you might be micro cheating and so on. Um, as you earlier said, it's merely to do with the context. It's to do with someone's intention, which is the important thing. Uh, not the actual behaviour. So there's not some kind of definitive list of, you know, some kind of taxonomy of behaviours which are micro-cheating. It really depends upon the person who's um, performing these behaviours and what their intention is in in doing that. You can't
3: see, but Natalie's looking very sceptical. That's because I'm looking at the one that says, liking someone else's posts on social media. It starts, you're in bed you've turned mm-hmm. the lights out but you can't sleep your thumbs itch and you start scrolling through Instagram you start liking the post of someone who if you weren't in a relationship would very much be your type you then do the same thing on your lunch break and on the bus home you leave a few emojis on their latest post including a heart now you've said that actually that <laughs> che- that being cheating <laughs> depends so on whether shoes. or not this is before dark or after dark Martin come on come on oh, okay. this is just straight cheating right or, okay. or the precursor no. too no
5: from our research, we we, we looked at this uh, a couple of years back, and we found that um, people's judgments of cheating um, really did depend upon the time of day, apparently, in which they were interacting with somebody else. Really? So, I... um, you know, when it was late in the night, um, our only explanation was that might have been seen as behaviour, which was seen as a little bit more sort of surreptitious and a bit more kind of... Um, you know, hide in from somebody else, as it were. What if, if you're you just a night owl?
4: Yeah, I, I, I want to go think? back, Martin, to you. What you were saying was around intention, right? And I'm thinking, uh-huh. what? what intention is wrong because I think that it's perfectly normal as a human being to be attracted to have perhaps connections with other people other than the person that you're with and you might have a little bit of a flirt a little bit of a chat that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to cheat on them but my intention would be to flirt because that person I'm attracted to in some way and I wouldn't do anything because I wouldn't cheat on my partner but Mm -hmm. like well, what, how do you define intention?
5: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not the kind of relationship sort of counsellor, but it kind of seems to me that <laughs> if, you're, if you're doing that, then, you know, if, if you're attracted to someone else, why would you be attracted to someone else outside of your relationship in a because, way which was not sanctioned by your, your partner? Because um, you're a
4: human being and you can have connections with yeah, people. Well, you don't have to act on them.
5: Well, uh you can't tell guess, me
4: you meet somebody and then you're never attracted to somebody ever, ever again. No, no,
5: abs- absolutely not. But I think the the, the whole kind of thing with microtune, it, it, it's acting in a way which which might upset your partner, which is not sanctioned by uh, your partner. And sure, if you if you are uh, you know liking posts, let's say on social media from other people, then that's perfectly fine. Uh, and you might there might be no intent in that, but. So is it, <laughs> it, is, it
4: of- is it agreeing what your behaviour should be with your partner? Because I'm thinking if I was with a really, really jealous partner, they might get yeah, upset yeah, yeah. about sure. me, I don't know, liking somebody's social media post. But if I was with somebody who was a little bit more relaxed about it then they wouldn't. So is it about us
5: indeed deciding I, I, with our
4: partners I, I, what's acceptable and what isn't i
5: think i think it does and i think you know that that's kind of where the uh, issue lies maybe it's it's to do with you know as i said it's person's attention. it's to do with maybe what your partner thinks and it's to do with you know if you if you've got someone who's sort of chronically jealous um, then you know, you probably can't do anything, can you? And you know, as you quite rightly said, that you you can uh, like posts, and using that as an example, like like things from somebody else, for example, um, and you know that that's perfectly okay. Um, Is the key if, if word absolutely. here, though, uh,
3: not respect. So, doing basically making sure that the approach that you take is respectful and if you're doing something and you feel slightly shady about it and you know it would be be seen as disrespectful then it's micro-cheating i.e. messaging someone or looking at someone's profile on the bus and leaving emojis and hearts. what Mm -hmm. might be
4: shady behavior for you might not be shady behavior for me
2: they (laughs) might just be somebody who likes an emoji you never know Uh, martin are you are you in a relationship
5: I'm not, no, no, no. Oh, are you somebody <laughs> who
2: likes a lot of posts on Instagram? Should we be looking out for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you <too. laughs> Thank you yeah. so much for joining us, Martin, chatting us through what might or might not be, depending on your intention, micro-cheating. Uh, if you want to like any of our Instagram posts, by the way, at Badass <laughs> that's yeah, where we, we are. Come we find love us? heart emoji.
4: badass women's hour excel
2: on talk radio she'll
6: get you talking
2: now if you like me are addicted to those property shows on tv where somebody just finds a house turns it around and makes a multi-million pound property makes multi-million pound property makes a multi-million pound profit from property uh then you're gonna love our next guest nicole bremner is a property developer best-selling author and i love this book particularly the owner of a company that only employs women. Hi, Nicole. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> so before we talk about anything else, how, have it, how is it that in the very blokey world of property, you have come to run an all women firm? Purely by accident.
7: And actually we tried to hire men recently, <laughs> early this year. We put out an offer to a guy and uh, we never heard back from him. We, I think that we really intimidate people or men. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So you're a property developer, does that mean that you buy a house, do a bit of decorating and sell it on? Are you buying huge developments? Where are you on the spectrum? Well that's how it started actually, is uh,
7: just buying houses, uh, renovating them and selling them or flats and that was back in uh, yeah, 2012, 13 when everything you touched would turn to gold. <laughs> uh, the, the property market was rising, it was very, very easy to do and a lot of people jumped into property development then because it just looked so easy. But now when the market is softer uh, and as I, I grew in my experience and what I was doing, I've started doing a, a bigger projects, scaling up. Now we're building out uh, about 350 flats across London and Luton, wow. if that's included in London. Uh, yeah, over 11 different projects. So yeah, it's, it's gotten much bigger.
2: And did you have a property background? Was that where you'd come from?
7: No, not at all. I worked in banking. And I was very mediocre at banking. I was never <laughs> going to make it. Well. I, I was never ever going to make it. And then I started a failed dot com business and again I wasn't very good at that. Then I had children and I seemed to be good at that. I had three very quickly. And it was really a what is next type of question that I was asking myself. And It was my partner who said, listen, you've loved the property development that you've done. You've loved the renovation of our home. You still talk to our builders. So why don't you do this again? You seem to be good at it. So I did. I did it again and again and again. And it's just it grew from there.
3: So how so talk us through the portfolio that you had. So did you was it literally one property at a time like we see on the television programs? And then you were like, actually, I don't want to do one. I want to do three hundred.
7: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was over a seven year time frame and and I must say that I don't own 100% of all of those Mm -hmm. I I, I own a a share of those so yeah very much at the beginning it was I would buy one property I would renovate it I would then sell it on and then I would have the cash to reinvest back into the next one and keep going like that but then I realized that that was actually quite slow because I did have to wait for that whole process to get my money back Mm -hmm. and I realized that if I bought a share in a property whether it be uh 50%, 20%, 50%, 20%, whatever it might be, I could then have a pipeline of properties in process and uh, spread out the risk, spread out the, the time and, and have a smoother income stream.
4: I've got a question about risk actually. I was having a, a talk with a friend of mine today. We were talking about women in business and risk taking. Uh, and you, you, know, you said that you got like 11 projects, 350 houses. Has your, um, your risk taking increased over those years? But although you just said there was less risk and almost bigger return. So can you tell us a bit about your sort of, I don't know, boldness, bravery, risk taking in your sort of journey, your property development journey? Property developers
7: by nature are, are risk takers. They are very much glass half full rather than half <laughs> empty. They have to be because what we do is very risky. The statistics of the number of small house builders, which is what I am, that's defined as those doing less than 350 uh, homes a year, uh, the number of those that are still up and running after five years is mm. is really harrowing. So we actually have to take a big risk. Uh, I think what women do differently, though, and this is speaking very generally, I, I think we're not quite as risk takers, such risk takers like the men. I think we do tend to think a little more about the risks and perhaps um, not go so gung ho into these investments. But um, there is a bit of bravery <laughs> that goes along with investing in property. However, it is still a hard asset you still own that property it's not like investing in in futures for example and you can you can lose everything you you still have that property it may drop by 20 percent, but you still own that asset
3: and so I, I agree with you I, but I th- think it's the word is, is considered I think women are more considered and the research shows that women deliver better returns for investors partly because they are more considered and and so actually, the big spikes of businesses doing well and then crashing are less so when you back a woman. For anyone listening at home, when you back a woman, you get your money back most of the time.
7: And I think that's what you've, you've said is it's not the spikes. It might not be as exciting when you invest with a woman because we might not have these massive returns, but we're also not going to get the massive declines mm. as well. It tends to be more stable, not quite as sexy,
4: not quite as exciting, but it's about capital preservation you launched a book at the end of last year called Bricking it what well, how did how did that come about and what did you want to put in the book
7: it was really because so many people would ask me about my story and just say how did you get into this obviously I'm a woman I'm I'm a mother and uh, I I look feminine and so f- people couldn't put this together and they wanted to know how I got into it and I was just being asked so many times and I've always wanted to bo- to write a book it's kind of a bit of a vanity project <laughs> let's face it so I did I wrote the book and it was sort of my story as well as this is how I did it and never have I ever said I'm an expert I'm definitely not I've been doing this 7 years now not an expert but I know what I've done, and I've know I know what's worked. I know exactly what hasn't worked, and I'm able to put this information out to people. So, yeah, I I published that book uh, myself. It was sort of hybrid publishing. It um, it did very well, thanks to the Daily Mail picking it up. And uh, yeah, it was fun.
2: So, what do you think are the kind of key lessons? You said you know what's worked and what mm. hasn't worked. What for you, maybe like the two or three things that you know if you do this 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 project's going to work?
7: Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is invest where you know, whether that be where you live or were brought up or where you work, invest where you know. There's no point, and a lot of people are doing this right now, there's no point living in London and renovating or having a project up in I don't know Newcastle or somewhere unless you have ties to that because it's just going to be so difficult for you to manage it might be better just to to step back and take a bit more time and, and do something closer to where you live the other thing is that it's always going to cost more and take longer than mm-hmm. you've estimated always so building a really really big buffer for both the time and the cost
3: mm-hmm. and so if I wanted to start property developing tomorrow Are there any hotspots around the UK that you would recommend, places where you think actually you're going to get a decent return? Because I've got friends that have said, you know, I'm going to, you know, ties to Cheshire and or Greater Manchester. But then they look at the returns and actually, it's you know, you may be getting 5% each year. Are there places where you can get a return as good as London? Well,
7: the, the actual returns are divided into your rental income and your capital growth. So with rental income, it's always been the actual uh, rental yield that you get in London has actually been quite small, but what you've been able to get historically is a capital growth. So your money's grown on the value of the property. But what's happening at the moment is the, the property market's softening. So in London, you're not getting your rental return and you're not getting your capital appreciation. So
3: let's just go, so to, to simplify that, so let's say if the mortgage is £1,000, you might get £1,050. But the, your year-on-year value of your property is going up, let's say, by another five to 10000 So you were doing quite well there. What you're saying now is that actually... You might just be getting the £1,000 for your rent, which covers the mortgage, and your property value isn't going up as much.
0: Or
7: it might actually be declining at the moment. That's the issue in London at the moment, especially, and that's starting to spread out to other uh, south-eastern areas and cities of, of the UK. So... There are areas that are still growing. I believe that places like Manchester, um, Derbyshire, that sort of area is something that's been touted a lot recently. Uh, Places up north where the rental yields, some places still have double-digit rental yields. Mm. I don't know how much longer that is going to last. I still think that if you are London-based, look for areas where there are big regeneration projects going on, where the local authorities are actually investing heavily back into their areas. You look at Wembley or you look at Stratford, after the olympics and before the olympics that was a massive (laughs) massive regen project so i live in e13 (laughs) Plasto, and
4: i've been on a campaign for literally 10 years to try and get people to move to Plasto because they're all spending all their money on their one bedroom flat so i'm like you can get a three bedroom house and be my neighbor and there's massive regeneration around there
7: absolutely and how what a better thing than being your neighbor everyone (laughs) can stop laughing
4: at me we've heard it
7: i completely agree and all of these areas, even uh, West Norwood, uh, Brent Cross, uh, Wembley, all the dock areas around uh, East London. All of these areas, are, there's a lot of regen, so you can jump in and let some of the developers take the early risk, and once they've done that, then uh, then there's space. Again, crossrail, that's another thing that's coming, and there's usually two t- two key times that you can profit from these sorts of announcements is one is just when they're made so if they announce a new cross rail line and the second is once people move into these areas realise how great they are and they can then jump in as well
4: Yeah. Okay. so I or like I find with the people, speaking to really successful people like you, it's like we're, we're where you are now. I'm really interested to know a bit more about your backstory In some of our notes that we had. You know, you started a few things and kind of failed. And I think there's never enough emphasis on people's personal like mm. journey and the things that went wrong in their past to get you to the point to be su- as successful as you are. Have you got perhaps one or two stories that you feel a lo- have been really big learnings that have helped you like get as successful as you are today? I'm still I'm still
7: working on this becoming successful business. And I think that um, having had a failure and as I said in the in the intro, yeah, I was very mediocre in banking. I just um, I wanted to be good at it. I just wasn't. It just wasn't me. And I worked in very much a back office function and I was building spreadsheets all day. And that's just not me. I love being in front of people. I love talking. And so for me, it's knowing when to quit actually and knowing when to move on and, and admit that okay this is not something that i'm good at and then dealing with the shame that comes along with that there's guilt and there's shame and there's all these the hushed whispers of family members going oh yeah nicole's not doing that anymore and, and it feels <laughs> such shame for it but actually what you do get and this is when my my dot-com fashion uh, company when i finally decided to pull the plug on that there was this instant relief as well mm. and you think. Okay, this really. Why was I flogging a dead horse to mm. use an Australianism? Why no. was I? Why was I trying to make this work for so long? So I think it's about trying to realize, like with the job, quit when you know that it's not the right thing. And also with a business, don't be afraid to quit the business. There's there is the shame initially, but it goes. <laughs> mm.
4: Yeah, a good advice.
2: What um what would you say for somebody who is looking at property now? Because you said you know it's. A difficult period, where would you call a softening period? Yeah, is now the time to start doing your research? Is now the time to start investing? Should where should you be? I actually think that now could
7: be a very good time to start buying. No one ever knows when the bottom of the market is, and some economists will pick it and then get paid millions of pounds a year for the next couple of years um, for picking it. But no one knows. Cats do better than some economists, unfortunately. (laughs) So. Now is looking good to start researching what areas you might like to buy. And it's particularly if you're a first-time buyer, there's the help to buy scheme up to around 600,000, I think. Don't quote me on that. Um, so there's, there is an opportunity right now to perhaps put some cheeky offers in because some developers are starting to feel the pain. Some developers are really over-leveraged. They've built too many units in one area. And so they need to offload of some of those. And so they're prepared to take silly offers. So... Now is the time to look for areas, perhaps um, have a chat with a broker and, and get an idea of how much you can afford and put in some cheeky offers and see what sort of responses you get.
2: Do you have to have sort of half a million quid saved in order to get into it?
7: Mm. Look, it does help and I've always been really upfront that when I started I did have a lot of money and, and that has helped my progression. And so when people say, yeah, well, you've gone from one property to yes, 350 uh, units in uh, seven years. Yes, that's because I did have a lot of money and also I don't don't own all of those 350 at the moment. So yes, you do need money. And I almost think, and this is sort of changing the subject a little bit, I almost think that we're too obsessed with home ownership in this country and it's to the detriment of our lifestyle. And I think a lot of young Mm. people, perhaps they should think about, being a slave to their mortgage and perhaps putting that off a little while and living a really good life and perhaps renting in a lovely, vibrant city and experiencing everything that um, that has to offer as well.
2: I love that. That is like <laughs> the antithesis <laughs> <laughs> of everything we ever tell millennials ever. We're like, no, put that avocado toast to down. <laughs> Start saving for your mortgage. goddammit. it. Nicole, do you think we should actually just turn into a nation of renters?
7: well it gives you flexibility and some statistics that i saw recently showed that over 50% of under 35s buying their first home who are, and they work in london are having to buy outside of london and they're becoming slaves to their mortgages mm-hmm. they're paying massive transport costs and i just i fear that they're they're not able to experience the the joys and the, the excitement of being an under 35 in this vibrant city that we have. And uh, perhaps there's another way, you, if you rent, you're flexible, you can move. I've moved, I've moved from Sydney to London to New York and back to London and all these opportunities I wouldn't have been able to have if I was a slave to a big mortgage.
3: So up under 35, do not own my own home and rel- and I'm single. So realistically, do you were just thinking, I am, I'm under 35. No, Thank I you know, very much, I, was, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. I was just thinking you need to get out of the studio, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and I'm single. So the, the idea of having huge deposit to put forward, to put on a property that, that at a minimum is going to cost me 600, maybe 700,000 based on where I live now. Um, I have no idea how I would even begin to do that in the next five years. So renting feels like a feasible... Option, but is it the only option? Are there other things that I can do to maybe raise that deposit by buying property elsewhere? But you're also saying buy where you know, and London is the only place that I I know. Well, there's
7: there there are a couple of
3: options. There's first of all is the Help to Buy uh, scheme. I'm not
7: sure how much longer that's going to be in existence, but and I'm not an expert on it either. But I believe that then you can put down a 5% deposit and uh, for, for a property up to 600000 So that might work for you. The other option is to perhaps pe- treat this as a business transaction and find a like-minded person or persons who can then buy in with you when you own a share of that particular property. And there's ways to legally divide that up so that if the relationship breaks down or if one person wants to move on, then someone else can come in or you can buy out the others at a preset price. And then the other one is what you mentioned is you you buy somewhere else, but you rent that out. And it's harder to get a mortgage for a buy-to-let uh, property if it is your first purchase, but it's not impossible.
3: Mm. There are lenders who will do that. Okay. Well, last week on the show, uh, we were talking about feminist brides and uh, Olivia spoke about the fact that when she was growing up, her, she lived with her mum and her mum's best mate, and so I said to my best mate, "I was like, maybe that's an option. Maybe we can buy somewhere, and you have the top floor because I want the garden, and I take the bottom <laughs> floor. That that's possible, maybe."
2: I love that you've cool. just decided you're getting the garden, so <laughs> yeah. you've relegated to the top floor. Yeah, your mate in the loft. <laughs> this was something you mentioned earlier, right? That you 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 said you're renovating 350 houses. Like, I'm not doing all of them. I'm a part of it, and I have mm-hmm. investors. If I decided that actually there's a great property at the end of my road that I think I could do up and sell at a profit, but I just don't have the money, how would I go about bringing somebody else in?
7: So find someone that does have the experience. um, Talk to friends. Talk to, to people you know. Research online give me a call (laughs) (laughs) and you'll find someone who will uh, know someone and recommendations are always the best way but most developers are used to working with people as investors and there's also there's crowdfunding which is a new Mm. quite a new concept but it's a, a legal way of investing in in fractional property ownership as well.
4: Mm, that's interesting i never thought you could um almost like yeah go in and invest with somebody else who was property developing and then get a share of that so that's very interesting
2: well years ago i went to a um sort of i I feel like it was almost entitled something like making millions from property or something yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) workshop and (laughs) the woman running it actually said there's something even just if you can find a plot that somebody else that property developers would want but they don't know about because maybe it's down an alley that you would only walk down if you're walking in that direction or it's been boarded up and now it's suddenly comes to life or whatever. Actually being able to take that information and find somebody who's interested in that in that information, that's still valuable. That's still something that has Yeah, it is has still a has a,
7: val- a value. And there, there were lots of these courses that sprung up over <laughs> the last few <laughs> years that um, charged people anywhere from yeah 20 to 200 even i've heard twenty thousand pounds wow. to uh, learn how to be what is called a sourcer and you source properties give them to developers and you take a one two sometimes even three four five percent return on that however it's actually it falls foul of regulation because in order to trust in order to do that you need to have a real estate a, a real estate license you need to actually be licensed and so all these people were going out doing that and uh selling these courses on how to do it and training up these people to be unlicensed real estate agents so they've had a massive crackdown on that recently and so
2: interesting so my morning dog walk has become a lot less interesting now. <laughs> not going kind to of bother looking out properties that look right for development
3: but declaring so declaring an interest the mayor uh, does have a scheme a small builders scheme and fund uh which provides funding if you if for small builders, it's not for just one property, but if you want to do uh, development or surveys on plots of land to get that land, to basically bring that land onto the market, there is funding and grants to enable that to happen. And if you go to the LEAP website, so
4: L-E-A-P, there is information on that and I'm on the LEAP board.
7: Oh, interesting,
2: yeah. All
4: about hiring. You know. I've got a question. So you you're saying that you only employ female builders and, you know, we talk a lot on this show about industries and lack of women, and I certainly feel like, you know, the building trade, it's not common to see lots of women. Can you tell us a little bit about like how easy is to find these women builders? Is the building industry getting better at having women? Yeah, I need trade. to correct.
7: I need to correct that information. So, I um, I've got two companies. One is East Eight, and one is London Central Developments. East Eight is my funding, the funding partner for London Central Developments. London Central Developments is the construction company. Unfortunately, we don't have any females working on site mm-hmm. in that particular team. What the, the the information that's been picked up is East Eight, which is their property management, the funding company. We do the marketing for all the companies. Uh, that is all women. And uh, so in that, we still have our project managers who look after the sites, but not the women on the tool We don't have women on the tools. There are women out there that do it, which um, is fantastic. I've been to a women in construction uh, course on how to be licensed to be women and uh, to be women in construction. And what's interesting is just even even just three, four years ago there were no female toilets on a construction site. So you can imagine these massive big construction sites and there'd be one or two women there on site and they'd have to share a, a, a construction yeah, loo <laughs> with oh. the men and now that's changing. And even if you're an architect coming on site and doing checks, there were no facilities for females. And so with these women in construction uh, corporations and and uh, groups they've now uh, been able to campaign so that women actually have their own uh, toilet That's facilities
3: so slightly different uh tax so thinking about what we were talking about in terms of uh developing where you know and um you know, just property and, and, and renting in general how do you ensure that when you're going into an area and you're buying property and you're renting it out that you're contributing back into that community because uh, you know I think we could all wax lyrical about gentrification and the changing landscape of, of communities in London. You know, Is there anything you can do as a developer or is it really just about the bottom line and buying somewhere and making sure that either someone else is buying it or you're getting a tenant in that can afford it?
7: Well, actually, this is where I think small home builders do a better job than the larger ones. And this is because... As a property developer, you have to give a certain number of uh, units over to social housing and you've got to develop and you pay contributions into the local authority as well. And what happens with the big developers is they've got teams of lawyers and consultants that do all this analysis and say that they can only afford to do 10 or 12% affordable. Small home builders like myself, we don't have that luxury. And so we end up paying 30 40% contribution or social housing. And so... We actually do more for the local uh, the local areas and the communities than the larger ones do. The larger house builders, it's just that our contribution is relatively smaller. And also what um, smaller house builders can do that the larger ones don't is we can be more... Just creative with the with this with the design and the architecture of the homes and the the apartment blocks that we're doing. We're often very design led, where the large home builders just have to put up quite homogenous generic buildings. Because that, exactly, because yeah. that's all they can afford to do with their higher costs. We can be much more design driven.
2: What's the project you've worked on that you're most proud of?
7: Yeah, anything in Hackney because it's my local area. <laughs> so there's one particular one called the St. Matthias uh, Youth Club on Dalston Lane. And I'm really, really excited about that because we it was brought to me as um, a vacant possession. So we're going to demolish the whole building, rebuild. I think we've got about um, eight flats there plus plus um, two levels of commercial. But then I found out that the St. Matthias Youth Club still were there they'd been there 49 years and they're actually being evicted by the vendor wow. and so i we sat down with them and we tried to work out a way uh, this agreement between the three parties where we could keep them in and in the end after nine months of negotiation we've managed to keep them in on a very very low rate because we're now going to subsidize their rent in the basement of the commercial with the uh, residential on the top floor sorry the ground floor commercial and that just, it warms my heart because it's in my that. neighborhood. And th- it's, what's amazing is we crowdfunded that particular um, project. We crowdfunded 1.4 million. And we've got investors who have bought a thousand, two thousand pounds worth of uh, shares in that who actually were youth mm. that went through St. Matthias. And, it, well, and they credit yeah. that organisation for changing their life and getting them off the streets of acne. And I'm going to tear oh, up now, God. but <laughs> that's my proudest project.
2: That sounds like an amazing project yeah. to be very proud of. Uh, Nicole, you've been absolutely inspirational. If people want to know more, you've got a book. What's it called? Where can they find it?
7: It's called uh, Bricking It, and it's on <laughs> Amazon. And, uh, yeah, you'll see my smiley face on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. And, uh, yeah, I've got a website, NicoleBremner.com.
2: Brilliant. Thank Brilliant. you so much. It's Thank been you. lovely you. To, to you. We've learned a lot. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I've particularly learned that I'm not going to go and try and flog something that's illegal. So
4: that's very <laughs> useful to know. <laughs> One, two, three, four.
2: you've been listening to the badass women's hour podcast if you liked it you know what you should do subscribe then we'll be in your ears every single week you could also rate and review us a little five stars makes us happier than anything
3: or a lot
2: of five stars or a lot come talk to us at badass women's hour hr tell us what you loved and we'll see you next week